Should new translations replace the ones that came before them? Or should they sit side by side for us to compare? I don't really have an opinion myself, but today on this episode, we've got a chance to think about that with a particularly interesting example. I'm Angus Stewart, and you're listening to the Translated Chinese Fiction Podcast. I've got a couple of shout outs to give. One's to Dylan Levi King. He's the first ever um, Patreon supporter that the show's got, and you might remember him from the episode where I, I interviewed him. He's an absolutely fantastic translator of Chinese. Um, you can check out his translated work, Record of Regret, written by Dong Shi. You can also uh, look him up on Medium. He's got a really good blog writing about all kinds of interesting things from China and also the Chinese internet, which I think is. Um, kind of a black box if you don't read or speak the language. Anyway, I've got another shout out. Um, this is for the Lead Center for New Chinese Writing. They do all sorts of things to promote translated Chinese fiction in the English-speaking world, and they're based in the UK, where I am, in Leeds. Uh, they do events, they do courses, they do offer visits, they put up short stories onto their website. In my little bonus show on Patreon, I used their uh, upload of Ayes the Curse. Um, I read it on there. And then if you want to hear my thoughts on that, you can become a Patreon subscriber and you get access to all the wee bonus shows I've put up there. Right now there's three things. There's that sharing of my thoughts on Ayes the Curse, the short story. There's a little bonus chat I had with Claire Howe off of our episode on Aileen Chang. And um, there's also myself giving a wee quick summary of my dissertation on Chinese sci-fi and what that's about. And I'm going to add a new one today. I'm going to add my thoughts on the essay Lu Shun wrote about his own moustache, because that is <laughs> that is something I think everyone should know more about, Lu Shun's moustache and his thoughts on his own moustache. So Patreon has all that stuff, and it is a way to contribute to the show. It's a monthly uh, contribution, so if you'd rather give a one-off contribution, there's also an account on Buy Me A Coffee. They're going to be, well, I'm going to link to both of them in the show notes. But yes, all support for the show is very much appreciated. So enough waffling. The book today is Ye Cao by Lu Shun. Do you remember Ye? That's a, well, assuming I pronounced the tone right, that's the character for Wild. I described this character before, or at least how I came to know it, on the episode about the Wild Great Wall, Ye Chan Chung, and how I learned uh, Ye means wild through learning the word for hair, which is Ye Tu, wild rabbit, wild great wall, Ye Chan Chung, and this time Ye Cao. Cao is grass. And the original translation of this collection of prose poetry was Wild Grass. But the name of the new translation is Weeds, which is what Ye Cao means, at least according to the dictionary apps If you I've used. If you pop in Ye Cao, you get the word Weeds. You don't get Wild Grass, although I haven't asked any actual Mandarin speakers about this, so take everything I say with a pinch of salt. But yeah, Ye Cao, Wild Grass, or Weeds. That's the name. Now, Lu Shun, that's a name that should be ringing bells if you are a fan of the show or obviously of Chinese literature. Uh, Lu Shun was the guy I did episode one on. We did his Diary of a Madman. So that was a piece of prose. This is a piece of prose poetry. And we're mostly focusing on the new translation of it today. It's called Weeds, and it was translated by Matt Turner. The bulk of this episode will be an interview with Matt. That's something you've got to look forward to. So, Weeds. It's bilingual. It's got Chinese on the left-hand page, the verso. It's got English on the right-hand page, the recto. That sets it apart from the original translation. Uh, it's really beautifully designed, nice minimalist design, quite light fonts, if I recall correctly. Um, and it's got lots of art illustrations. It's woodblock style art, and it's by Monica Lin. And we'll talk a little bit more about woodblock art and why that's relevant to Lu Shun later in the show. Uh, so the older translation, I'll also try and pay some attention to that this episode. That's by the Beijing Foreign Languages Press, and it was translated by the same people who translated uh, our reading of Diary of a Madman. It was the Yangs, uh, Yang Xianyi and Gladys Yang. And I learned something about them since episode one that I'll admit to in the interview with Matt Turner. I guess some of the listeners to the show might already know the thing I didn't know. Um, those of you that don't, maybe you'll be surprise in the same way I was. Maybe you won't. We'll see. You can look forward to that. Um, listening back to old shows, I noticed that I tried to, I talked about making a word of the day a thing 
in one episode and then totally forgot. So I'm going to try and bring it back. So we've got two words of the day in this episode. Our first one is Bai Hua Wen. Bai Hua Wen. I, again, sorry if I've got the tones wrong. So Bai Hua Wen, that is um, the vernacular Chinese. That's uh, what Lu Xun and his contemporaries wanted to be writing in, as opposed to classical Chinese. And weeds, ye tao, wild grass, is in Bai Hua Wen and is held up as an example of it as applied to poetry. Our other word of the day is san wen shi. Again, sorry if the tones are wrong. And that is a Chinese word for a Western concept, I learned. Um, that's the Chinese word for prose poetry, which new culture movement Chinese writers picked up from writers like Baudelaire uh, from French literature. So yeah, wild grass is in prose poetry. It's poetic. It doesn't follow any strict forms. A lot of it's written in paragraph. One of the poems is written mostly in dialogue as if it were a script, but it is all sanwenshu. It's all prose poetry, which honestly I prefer to normal poetry. Um, poetry is not my natural home as a reader. I like I like stories and prose. Uh, I'm going to talk a wee bit about the paratexts of the two editions. What are paratexts? Some people might ask. So paratexts are all the text additional to the main body, the actual piece of writing. So things like the blurb, the forewords, final notes, things like that. What? Fi afterwards, final notes, what am I talking about? So the foreign language press had a short publisher's note, a very short one, and it had the 19 1931 preface for an unpublished English translation of uh, Ye Tao by a guy called Feng Yusheng, but Feng Yusheng's translation never actually got published. But because the preface was designed for English language readers, from outside of China who might not get all the cultural references, it's included in the foreign language press version and it does give some useful historical context. In fact, it's so useful that I'm going to read most of it just now. Let me just find the page in my PDF here. Okay, got it. So he gives some examples of like the context and inspirations for his poems and I'm just going to read them. To cite a few examples, my Lost Love was written to satirise the poems about lost loves, which then were the vogue. Revenge was written out of revulsion at the number of bystanders in society. Hope was out of astonishment at the passivity of young people. Such a fighter was my reaction to those men of letters and scholars who abetted the warlords. More about the warlords in a minute. The Blighted Leaf was written for my friends who wanted to preserve me. After the Tuan Chujui, that seems like a Wade Giles... Uh, rendering. I don't think that's what we call that government today. After they fired on unarmed demonstrators, I wrote The Mid Pale Bloodstains at a time when I had left home and gone into hiding. The Awakening was written during the fighting between the warlords of the Feng Tian and Chili cliques, after which I was able to remain in Peking, aka Beijing. So it may be said that these were mostly small pale flowers on the edge of the neglected hail which could not, of course, be beautiful. But this hell was bound to be lost. This was brought home to me by the expressions and tones of a handful of eloquent and ruthless heroes, in quotes, who had not at that time realised their ambitions. Thereupon I wrote, The good hell that was lost. There, later on, I wrote no more things of this kind. In an age when things were changing daily, such writing and even such reflections were no longer allowed to exist. To my mind, this was probably a good thing. And here my preface for these translations may well end. So I learned in my research for this episode that Lu Xun kind of later uh, disowned this uh, collection of work. He found it a bit too pessimistic, and I'll explain why why Lu Xun was feeling pessimistic. So when he was writing this from 1924 to 26, it was Republican China. The Qing dynasty that he disliked so much had been swept away for quite a while, but it hadn't translated into the more invigorated, assertive have what's a good adjective, a less victimised China, let's say, because the whole country had split into mostly territories controlled by warlords, generals who'd gone rogue, and the actual government, the Revolutionary Party, the Kuomintang, who had replaced the Qing dynasty, only controlled a tiny bit of the country in 1925, the kind of middle period of when Lu Xun was writing these poems. If you go to Wikipedia, uh, there's quite a good page about it. It's called Warlord Era. And I'm looking at it right now, and at the top right corner of that page, there's a map of the eastern portion of China, um, and it shows you which parts were under 
warlord control and which parts were under government control. And oh my goodness, um, the government has almost nothing. The warlords have the whole country. So there's a description of bombers uh, that I mentioned in the interview with Matt Turner flying towards Beijing. And you might think it's a for you know invading foreign bombers or Japanese bombers. It's not. It's uh, it's the warlords fighting each other for control of Beijing. And yeah, more of that in the interview. So that's the context Lucian was writing in and why he left that uh, preface. Now I'm going to talk about the Pyrotechs in the new edition, published by Seaweed Salad. So it's got an introduction written by Nick Admussen, who's a scholar and a translator and a poet. And I actually used his writing on Ye Tao because he's written about it and about the Bai Hua Wen of it. I used that in my research just pre- preparing for this episode. That's the first Pyrotext. After that, there's a translator's preface where Matt Turner himself, uh, he kind of describes and muses about why he made this new translated work and what his kind of inspirations were. And he questions, he asks some like philosophical questions. What is the purpose of a new translation? And leaves you to kind of figure it out for yourself. Another paratext we've got is a note on the woodblock prints by Monica Lin, who was the artist who did the illustrations uh, for this book. Now, the reason she chose woodblocks, she explains it in her little paratext, but I'll tell you guys as well. So Lu Shun was a man of many, many talents, and as I learned reading a book called Translating Modern China, um, edited by Chris Song and Sun Yifeng, uh, it had a whole essay, not by one of those guys, by another academic, about woodblocks in the new culture movement and Lucian's role in copying the style from uh, European countries. I think Russia was where they got a lot of their inspiration, maybe also Germany and France. But basically, just like these um, prose prose poetry forms that they tried to bring in to modernize their literature, they tried to bring in woodblock, which was a kind of cheap, effective and modern format for depicting scenes, which could be used to further their kind of raise awareness or uh, be used for their political goal of modernizing and left-wingifying China. So yeah, that's the style that Lucian's most closely related to visually, and it's a really good choice, as well as a really visually pleasing choice for this new edition. So big thumbs up there. Um, Then after that little note from Monica Lin, we've got notes from Matt on how he translated various words and phrases, or kind of arranged poem by poem. Quite nice and less intrusive than having footnotes on the pages of actual poetry. And then last of all, there's some acknowledgements and there's mini bios for Nick Edmussen, Matt Turner and Monica Lean, but not Lucian, although I suppose he's a bit of the odd one out in that set. So all prefacing uh, done, I'll let you guys listen to the interview. So Matt Turner is the author of the poetry collection Not Moving, published by Broken Sleep in 2019, and he's the translator of our book today, Lucian's book of prose poetry. Uh, here are the t- trans- title translated as Weeds, and it was published, as we've said, by Seaweed Salad Editions 2019. That's this year. He's the co-translator uh, with Wang Haiying of the books by Yan Jun Chan. Now, correct me if I'm saying these right. Chan Chi Tak and Hu Jiu Jiu. Did I get the middle one right? Uh, the, well, the middle one's actually in Cantonese, but in for Mandarin, it's just Chen Mia. Chen so. okay. How do you say it in Cantonese? Oh, I have no idea. I don't speak Cantonese, so... <laughs> yeah, fair enough, me neither. So, uh, Matt has written essays and book reviews... Sorry, essays and reviews for Book Forum, uh, the Los Angeles Review of Books China Channel, Seedlings, Cha, and a number of other journals. And these days, he lives in Brooklyn, New York, where he works as a freelance translator and editor. So, Matt, really good to have you on the show. Hello. Uh, hello, thank you for having me. Great to be here. Yeah. So here's your first question. Are you ready? Sure. So I think uh, you you asked me this before we started the interview. Now I'm going to ask you, uh, how did you become involved with Chinese things? Um, I had had a a longstanding interest since I was probably in my late teens in sort of Asian things, Asian philosophy and cinema um, and a little bit of literature eventually that started becoming a bit more focused and when I was in graduate school I had the chance to meet a couple of poets from Beijing and and I had also read an interesting article about the the art scene in Beijing it was in Art in America I think around 2001 and that was pretty decisive uh, for me that I 
I thought that I should end up moving to Beijing. I didn't move right away. I spent some time in Berlin and then in New York, but I was offered a job there and and left. And after I moved there, I became a little bit more involved with the writing world and started learn, learning the language. Cool. Um, do you remember which poets you met? Yeah, um, a guy named Shredi, who worked at Brown University, where I did my master's degree, and then another poet, Xichuan, who was a visiting writer there. Cool. And when you said you were interested in Asian things, was it like East Asian things, like China and its neighbors, or was it Asia more broadly? I, I should have clarified, East Asian. Um, okay. I did have some interest in India, but I really I had no point of contact with it, really, or I, I just happened to know people uh, from South Korea and China, and uh, including some family members of mine. So there was a bit of a, a, a point, it's just a point of contact where I could become more engaged with it. That's really cool. It's a contrast with me. Um, quite a few friends, um, Western and Chinese, asked me, like, why China? And it's like, they were the guys who gave me the nicest job offer and had the loosest approach to visas. That's, a, <laughs> that's why China. Well, well I, I would say that's part of it. When I was looking, when I was living in New York, and I was looking for a teaching job, and I initially looked at Japan okay. and and South Korea and a place in China ended up offering me a job, and the the hours were better, the visa restrictions were more reasonable, or not restrictions. Just the whole process was more reasonable. Yeah, and because I had this interest in Beijing, where the job more or less was it was an easy decision for me to make. And kind of following on from the last kind of main question, uh, what's your journey as a translator prior to Weeds uh, been? What's it been like? Um, well, so I trans I finished translating Weeds in 2013. Uh, so prior to doing that, I had translated some poems here and there by different poets, uh, mostly May 4th poets. And... Um, but I didn't really do much with them. I published a couple of the translations here and there, but Weeds was the first sustained project I worked on. Now, the, between the time of me finishing Weeds and it being published in 2019, you know, that's six years. So in that time, I got to know some other translators through social media primarily and was able to get some jobs, uh, literally some authors looking for translations. And... Um, I did them with my wife, Wang Haiying, and um, we we co-translated several books. And then during that time, we also started doing more translation just for hire, and I started doing more for hire and working freelance as a translator, doing uh, non-literary things, doing business, news, that kind of thing. And um, so eventually, I had been looking for a publisher for uh, Weeds, and... David, David Perry, the publisher at Seaweed Salad Editions, ended up reaching out to me about it after like, nobody had been interested for years. So it was quite a, it, it was, yeah, I felt like it was my arrival, I guess. Well, that's cool. Um, did anything from your non-literary translation work kind of feed back into your own writing or translations or just way of thinking about things? Yeah, when I initially started translating, not only weeds, but other things, I, I tried to, I think I was very um, literal, I guess, for lack of a better term, better word, uh, and not very imaginative with what I could do. And as I started doing other things, ironically, very unimaginative styles of translation, just conveying information, it made me realize, you know, what a, what a translation could really do and how it can make a piece of literature come alive. Mm. Do you have any um, favorite translations that you've read that do that, that bring the original alive? Oh, boy. Um, well, in, in Chinese, uh, there's a lot of translations I really like. Jeez, it would be a very long list. I think... Mm. You um, can tell us one you hate instead. <laughs> I, I think I mean, we're, we're living in a time with some really good translators. Mm. And especially for poetry. Now, there, there are translations that come out that are clumsy, that are uh, 
I think they're they're very precious in the language they use, trying to use a kind of poetic diction. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of translations all have the same voice, um, where you're hearing the translator over different authors, and you see this in a lot of anthologies with single single translator anthologies. But um, I mean, I'm not very interested in that. And like at this point, I, I don't even pay attention to that sort of thing. It's just I, when I first, when I was getting more involved with the translation world, I would write, I wrote some essays talking about translation and, uh, because I was really trying to engage with that world. But at this point, I'm sort of happy to do my own thing. That's cool. Um, I think I didn't even ever give translation a thought until I read something that where the translation really arced me. It was, um, when I first decided I was going to read a Chinese classic, it was Hong Lo Meng, uh, Dream of Red Chamber. Dream, mm-hmm. The Dream of the Red Chamber, one of its many translated names. And it, I think it was the original, very, very old, first English translation. And, oh my God, uh, really didn't help matters because it's such oh, a long book. There are a number of... Sorry, yeah, it, it got me searching for, like, different versions. Not that I was actually going to seek out reading a different version halfway through, but it just reading descriptions of the more modern translations, I was like, oh, I, I've made a mistake here. <laughs> I think sometimes the translations, the older translations can be dated, and that's natural. Um, yeah. Some books with raunchy sex scenes, the translators decided to render them into Latin. <laughs> and, really? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, I, you know, it's just the times. It's hard to hold that against them. I think you know, there's always room for new translations, it's one of the ways we engage with literature, an extremely important way of engaging with literature. So, mm. I mean, like with the translation of Weeds, the, the only English language translation that's complete by Gladys and Xianyi Yang, I, I thought has a lot of merit, but it's definitely, um, it, it's definitely stiff. It doesn't, it's not especially exciting. So, I mean, that was something that I responded to as a, as a person, as a reader, and that made me want to act, actually made me want to translate. Mm. So the other piece of Lucian that this podcast has covered was also translated by those guys. It was the um, the Madman's Diary. Do you know if Lucian are those guys like the Lucian translators, or has he been, or his works kind of translated by quite a range of different people? Do you know? So. To the second part of your question, there have been a lot of people who have translated Lushun. And right. uh, maybe about 10 years ago, Penguin did an edition of The Complete Fiction that was translated mm. by Julia Lovell, which is wonderfully translated. It's a really, really nice translation. But as far, so as far as your first, the first part of your question, they worked for a, pub, a translation publishing house in Beijing. And so were kind yeah. of basically just given assignments. Yeah. And I had heard that they even sometimes would translate a book in a day which is insane, Ooh. but they would, they would crank them out. And um, you can't really, you know, that kind of pace, that kind of brisk pace, it's like being in a newsroom almost. You can't really hold it against them for not turning out pristine copy. Um, I, I think, yeah, and they did a lot of authors. They did Lu Xun. Um, they did ancient literature. They did everything. Mm-hmm. Would you like to know something really embarrassing about myself? So when I was... Um, Reading Madman's Diary, I was reading about um, Gladys Yang and Xianyi Yang, or Yang Xianyi, and did not know that Gladys was from Britain. Didn't know. <laughs> I thought I thought she was just a Chinese lady with an English name. Oh. Um, yeah, well, but it's I mean, such I an interesting fun. story. They have a great story, and um, Xianyi Yang has a really nice autobiography too, which I'd recommend, called cool. White Tiger. Yeah, I should probably do an episode on on them, do them some justice. Yeah. So going back to commercial things and publishing, um, so I'll, I'll phrase this question two ways. Um, how's, how is Weeds getting distributed? Or as a reader, how can we get our hands on it? So um, this is published by Seaweed Salad Editions, which is a small press, which is in Shanghai, but it has distribution out of the United States. Uh, the press started as it was started by the artist Monica Lin and as a way to do artist monographs. Eventually, they started doing some poetry and they did a book by uh, David Perry, 
her husband and partner on the press. And uh, they recently published a chapbook he translated by the Shanghai poet Hanbo. And um, so this is, I guess, the third literary book they've done. And they're still getting a foothold. And right now, the distribution they have, if you want to buy the book, you can either go to their website and just order it directly from the press, which is easy, or mm -hmm. go through Small Press Distribution, which is a large distributor of independent presses in the U.S. And I believe now it might be on Amazon, too. Oh, cool. Um, I, I hope at some point it gets into bookstores. But, you know, I, <laughs> I, I try to understand the business dealings of literature, but honestly, this stuff is a little beyond me, how things get in and out of bookstores. Okay. So, um, yeah. But the, right now, through the press, through small press distribution, I think it's spd.com. Yeah. And um, might be worth checking out Amazon, too. Okay. Well, to give you a little bit of the limited publishing perspective I have from my studies and meeting people in the Scottish and UK publishing industry, don't get it from Amazon, guys. Amazon are the devil. Um, better <laughs> to get it straight from the publisher. Or maybe if you're buying in bulk through um, small press distribution. Although, <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, Amazon... Amazon are convenient, but um, honestly, like in certain circles, you don't talk about using it. <laughs> yeah, um, I think I mean, SPD, Small Press Distribution, is very good. They're really quick with deliveries. Oh, okay. um, they don't have crazy fees or anything like that. Right. So, and and uh, you'll have the satisfaction of not shopping at Amazon, too. Yeah, you did your good deed for the day. <laughs> I have found in my... Um, uh, dissertation studies. Um, do you know much about Amazon Crossing? A little bit. I've known some translators who have worked with them. Right. But, I don't, well, but only the, the most basic of details. Well, I had a look at the range of translated Chinese books they have, and it's really interesting because um, it's totally different from the kind of print books you would tend to run into. Um, something like uh, a quarter or more than a quarter of the books were genre fiction. And out of the ones that were literary, about half of them were by younger writers rather than people like uh, Yan Li and Ke, like older. Mm -hmm. But yeah, um, that's totally going off on a tangent. But yes, Amazon, I, I are, Amazon are interesting. Yeah, I mean, something like that doesn't surprise me a lot. It's very, you know, even though Chinese literature is sort of hot at the moment, it's not easy to make contact with publishers or to mm. catch their eye always. And for younger people they often want something a little bit more immediate uh, like they want to get their work out there they don't want to wait for years while while editors consider it mm -hmm. yeah i think there's um there was a there's a horror novel in there as well as a few crime ones <laughs> and there's a sci-fi one as well anyway totally getting distracted um so the next question this is about lu shun so i've noticed he's quite a lot of things to quite a lot of people um including you know people present people past certain political parties um certain education systems but mm -hmm. what's lucian to you what does what does he kind of represent for you um this is kind of a complicated question for me because for me he was my gateway into chinese literature so i it's not a political or literary question uh, or answer, really, except that when I, shortly after I first moved to Beijing, I, a friend of mine, a co-worker of mine, just recommended I look, I look at this book, Wild Grass, and I bought a copy and really liked it, but I thought it was, I thought it could have been really good, but it wasn't quite there. And um, I read it again. And eventually I decided that I was going to retranslate it. And that was sort of my, the beginning of me studying Chinese and looking at uh, other Chinese literature that w wasn't ancient, which was, you know, for most people who don't know anything about Chinese literature, they may have heard of, you know, Du Fu or Li Bai or a couple of the big ones. Mm -hmm. And um, so he was really, Lu Xun is my gateway into not only translation, but Chinese literature as well. Um, in Chinese, but also seeing the uh, the ferment in the time period that he was writing in, and mm. inc incredible creative energy. And um, through him, I was able to learn about other writers and uh, you know of his of his circle or people he didn't like. And um, 
I, so that I mean, that's who Lu Xun is to me. He's the, you know the gateway to translation and the Chinese fiction. I, I also think, just as a writer, I mean, he's he's a great writer. He's a weird writer. Yeah. Um. He's he's quite funny, very caustic. He's very mm-hmm. perceptive. I I don't think I've read anyone talk about Chinese society as well as he has before or after, and um, uh, you know, so he's all of those things as well. Tell you what, he had a really sharp look as well. Excellent really... mustache. <laughs> yes, his, he has a little essay called My Mustache. Does he really? Yeah. And, oh my uh, God. Yeah, he, he was very aware of his mustache. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you see, as soon as I hang up the, uh, the Skype call, you know what I'll be doing. <laughs> that sounds great. Um, so following on from that question, uh, have you been on a pilgrimage quote unquote, or a visit to any Lushun sites? Because I know China's got quite a few. Yeah, I've been to his house in Shanghai. I've been to his, the hostel he stayed at in Beijing where he wrote Yetzal or Weeds. All right. Um, there, you know, there are a few different Lushun museums I seem to have stumbled into. I have not been to Xiaoxing, his hometown. And I really resisted it because you know how tourist sites in China are done up and can be very deflating if you're excited about it. Sure. Um, Especially considering the sort of official narrative around Lushun. It's not something I'm particularly interested in, this sort of proto-communist icon who is always depicted as standing very straight, somewhat muscular, uh, looking into the distance with his critical eye. And... I'm not very interested in that side of Lushun. Now, I would like to go to, to Xiaoxing now. Um, I'm older mm. and more mature, I guess. <laughs> but, um, you can I, uh, I, read between the lines. Yeah, I, I would like to go, but I haven't been. I loved going to his residences. I thought it shows him, I mean, just to see how someone lives. I mean, he was a really interesting guy. He was interested in everything, and especially all the different arts, the inter- international arts, international thought and ideas. Um, that, that comes alive somewhat in the residences. Yeah, it, it's been really interesting. So on my dissertation research, I bought this book called, I think was it Translating Modern China? The book's not with me. But it was a collection of essays about translating or the transmission of different things from Chinese culture. And there was a whole one on like May the 4th and its relation to woodblock prints, which I had no idea about. And it was like, Lu Xun was the father of that. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, interesting. And I was reading about early Chinese sci-fi and Lu Xun was the number one advocate for translating sci-fi into Chinese. So mm-hmm. it seems like okay. he's, not to sound pejorative, but he had his fingers in lots of pies. He was totally he did. proactive. You know, he was a co-founder of the, the League of Left-Wing Writers. He was contributor regular contributor to a couple of different magazines he just did all kinds of stuff i mean he was really a pretty amazing guy very human um i think you can pick him apart in many ways but but i think pretty remarkable not not just as a writer but just as an individual Mm -hmm. um so i've been to that shaoxing museum and at the time i remember thinking it was my first year in china so I was very new to everything. Certainly couldn't read anything on the walls. I think there was almost no English. But I remember it was designed. The design was pretty tasteful. It didn't seem to scream anything particularly um, political. But then again, I couldn't read what was on the walls. But it was, from what I remember, it was pretty good. Oh, I can't remember. I think they might have had a former residence, like an old house for mm-hmm. of his, as well as the museum. That might have right. been someone else's former residence. Most of those kind of blur together in my mind. I haven't been back to that region in uh, since 2010. Right. So uh, I always tell myself next time I'm down there and in that area, I'm going to go. But one of these years. Yeah, that was um, now the two places I lived in China were Zhejiang and Shanghai. So that was kind of Jiangnan, that area. That was where right I was. There. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. But it's interesting to think like if I'd been up in Beijing and the north and maybe the northeast had been my haunt. What, you know, what different things <laughs> that I've seen? You know, the funny thing is up there in, in Beijing where I lived, uh, I never became very interested in the, the northeast, Dongbei. Mm-hmm. Um, some people feel very drawn to it, but I always wanted to go south, Jiangnan to that area or even further south. The um, other man's Yetao is always yeah. more green. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think so. Mm. There was actually quite a few things from the one time I went to Dongbei were popping in my head reading some of the background information on this about the warlords in the northeast mm -hmm. um, and all the different factions fighting because so the two places I went in the northeast were um, Shenyang because Shenyang had the fast train to how have I forgotten what it's called the border town with North Korea uh, mm -hmm. Dandong um, and Shenyang was way more interesting than I remember. And there was, there was a bank there that was like built by Germans, used by the Chinese warlords, at times controlled by the Japanese. It just seemed like it was a total um, mosh pit of different little groups fighting each other and different cultural influences. Mm. And like, I remember, so I was reading, for the first time, I was reading Wild Grass today and there was the mention of bombers flying like birds and bombing Beijing mm -hmm. and I just assumed that was the Japanese and I was reading your um, your notes on the translation and it wasn't it was Chinese bombers bombing a Chinese city mm -hmm. yeah we're, we're really on a tangent now aren't we <laughs> uh, yeah so that's the question about pilgrimages done on the on the note of pessimistic um, kind of pessimistic mood that Shun was writing in and the wild chaotic times some would say we're living in such times now. Obviously, Japan isn't invading anywhere, um, but certainly in the Western world, to me, in the eyes of many people, things don't look good. Um, do you feel that your translation of weeds has any... Do you think weeds can speak to the weirdness of our times at all, or is that the wrong way of looking at it? I don't know. I, I mean, I, I just don't know the answer to that question. I would, I, I would hope that it speaks to people of all times, and yeah, right now in in the U.S. is right now, and in, in the U.K. as well. These, these periods that feel like great transitions, but into yeah. what it doesn't look like anything very pleasant. And you know, I suppose, and very broadly, there might be a, be a parallel with Lucian's time. Um, you know, it, uh, that book weeds just speaks to his you know he had written he wrote some of his fiction his famous fiction and then he got very disillusioned basically went through a depression had a falling out with his brother um he just went through a very dark period and he wrote weeds mm -hmm. um now weeds was all serialized when he wrote it so he wasn't writing in isolation exactly but um nevertheless it was, it was a bit of a cry of disillusionment and uh I think if, if people today can't relate to that, then uh, I don't know what they're smoking because it's, you know, this is a pretty disillusioning time period. So, mm -hmm. I mean, hopefully they can, but hopefully also that they can relate to the exuberant language and what is also a very, his affection towards the people who are actually trying to uh, maybe improve things make things better, uh, and the unheard voices. You know, in one of the last pieces in Weeds, he, he talks about a magazine that is pulling alone at the bottom of the sea, as he puts it. And mm -hmm. I love that description of just the uh, people who do the work of literature or political change, but who aren't, who aren't doing it in, in a way that's very obvious. And uh, he, it's almost like they're doing it themselves. Mm -hmm. So hopefully, I mean, hopefully, <laughs> this is a big hope, but people will maybe relate to, to that feeling. I, as so. a translator, I would hope so, because translators are so often overlooked. We, we're definitely pulling alone at the bottom of the sea. Sure, yeah. Um, that's, that's one thing I'm trying to do with this podcast is, um, although it's the author's name that go in the episode titles, I'm trying to... Um, focus about as much get put as much focus on the translator as i can even though it's perhaps a less glamorous or recognized thing to be doing i mean i don't think there's a reason to you know to overvalorize translation but it, right. but it's crucial also there would be our, our literary universes would be much smaller without translation and good translations and i hope weeds is a good translation but good translations bring our world world alive in ways we couldn't that 
it wouldn't be in other ways. So they're not exactly translators aren't exactly co-authors, but no, um, they're more than PR people as well. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, one thing I've not done um, in my kind of general. I don't. I wouldn't call it research, research. Just kind of poking around. I've not looked at really translation from other languages into English. So I don't know how much of a unique case Chinese into English versus other languages into English is. But yeah, it's. Um, it, I think it is probably. I think one of the more important axes for cultural exchange is probably Chinese and English. Again, maybe given the times we're living in. Mm -hmm. I hope so because uh, learning Chinese is a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. Well, I, I'm sure probably your experience isn't too different from other people's, but like when I actually started trying to learn it, I was surprised there were elements that weren't hard. Um, of course, there are like writing. I still can't really write the characters, but do you think there could be a more, what's the right adjective, a more painful language to learn? I'm positive there are always more painful things to learn in languages too. Uh, <laughs> But, um, you know, the thing with Chinese, I would say conceptually, it's not especially difficult, but mm. it just requires lots and lots and lots of rote practice. Right. And, time. Uh, yeah, and time. And if you're like me, you're kind of lazy and you don't want to do that. And so you feel that really eating away at you and you start to feel guilty. <laughs> so, uh -huh. um, yep. so, so this is, you know, I've always wanted to learn Cantonese, but this is why I will never learn Cantonese. Yeah. Yeah, it's got more tones than Mandarin, doesn't it? Yeah, it's written slightly differently in some cases, too. So oh, right. um, it's, it, it looks very difficult, and Mandarin gives me a lot of trouble already. I hope you, I hope you cope. <laughs> Thank you. You seem to be coping all right. Um, so speaking again of, like, modern times... Um, so I've, I've seen a few people, including uh, Dylan, Dylan Levi King, when he was on the show, say that kind of the May 4th new culture movement, literature, especially Lushun, it's kind of been studied to death. They are more, they would rather see focus put on other things. Uh, do you agree with that sentiment to any extent or you absolutely disagree? I, I'm not sure what people mean when they say studied to death. Uh, those are my words, to be fair. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, in, in China, in the May 4th movement broadly, including the politics around it, are, um, I would say, has been possibly done to death, yes. It's, right. it's, it's overbearing. And um, it's hard to look at anything afterwards, really, if you're, you know, in the... How do I put this? It's just, it's, over, it's overpowering. It's everywhere. It's that or ancient stuff. So in, in China, it, yeah, I, admit, I would say that it's, it has a bit of a too large of a presence at this point. But now in the Western world, I would say no. Lushun, arguably the, the most well-known figure of the May 4th period, is completely unknown for the most part in the West. Yeah, agree. when he is well known, I will say it is done to death. Actually, I won't <laughs> even then, because even if you are in, you know, like if you're an academic, for example, and you uh, you're in an East Asian languages department and you study Chinese modern Chinese literature, monographs are still coming out treating writers that are untranslated, really good writers from that period, and never mind the the larger cultural and political sphere. Now, there is a lot done on it. It's true. But it seems like there, there's more that remains to be done. Mm. I'd say in the West, it's not like China, where you know May Fourth really overshadows contemporary literature. I would say in the West, misty poetry does, so-called misty poetry like Bedao, Guqiang, people like right. that. Um, the great writers and those of them who are still alive, I hope they receive some money from their popularity. But it's. Um, it absolutely overshadows the May 4th movement or literature. I mean, mm. no, barely anyone knows who Lu Xun is. And, you know, after that, uh, I mean, there are plenty of writers, big writers too, Dingling, Zhou Zoran, writers mm. who are very different, Xu Zhimo, writers who are extremely different, but they, they're untranslated or there's one translation. Um, yeah. 
I, I was so I, really surprised when I went looking for a nice looking edition of the Diary of Miss Sophie. Um, and there was nothing bar one kind of outdated looking collection of Dingling's writings that I think came out just after she'd um, done her trip to the US. And that I think that was like only available secondhand on Amazon. Um, and I was like, damn, there's probably an opportunity there for someone to make a nice like Penguin Classics Absolutely. Diary of Miss Sophie budget, one or two or three pounds, mm-hmm. three, four, five dollars thing. There are but so many good, yeah. There's so many good writers from that period. Um, especially there are a lot of lesser-known writers who are very interesting, and they it has not been done to death. I mean, maybe in an academic sense in the West, yeah, it's going to be a little bit harder to write about and say anything new about that period. Mm. But nevertheless, I mean, just as general readers or or translators or even people who just like to read Chinese stuff in translation, um. The, it's, it's not overrepresented. It's extremely underrepresented. Mm. Uh, you know, even with Lu Xun, uh, you know, there's the four volumes of his prose that's put out in China with okay translations. There's a, an edition of a selected prose, selected essays, which came out last year or the year before, which is good. There's the Julia Lovell collected fiction. Now there's my version of Weeds. Hey. Um, there's a... Uh, there's nothing really. I mean, there, there's still gaps to be filled. He wrote yeah. classical style poetry. There's a translation that is uh, not recent uh, by John Koalas, I believe, of his classical style poetry. But good luck finding it anywhere except for at a university library. So, right. or for like uh, two hundred pounds on Amazon. Right. And never mind other writers. Um, you know, Joe Zoran, his brother, was a mm. fantastic essayist. I think there's one translation in English from the Chinese University Press or, the University, or Hong Kong University Press. And, um, or someone like Fei Ming, who's a fantastic weirdo writer. There's nothing in English, like literally nothing. Um, mm. But there, there's so many opportunities there. Yeah. This I mean, is a I very do... stupid question. So uh-huh. when I visualize Jules Warren, I imagine like a slightly smaller version of Lu Xun with a slightly smaller mustache. Did he also have a mustache? I, I don't believe he did. Wow. No, disappointing. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, but to, to that question, of people feel like, i just return to this for a moment, but people feel like they want to see recent authors translated. Mm. I think that's great. Obviously, I'm an author. I'm a poet. I'm a poet first um, before being a translator. So I want recent writers to tra- be translated and to get exposure. Absolutely. But... Just because it's recent doesn't mean it's great. And I, when I was sending out uh, weeds to publishers, and one reason people weren't interested was because it was old. Um, right. Never mind he's a major modernist of an international caliber, but it was just old. And, okay, whatever. That's a really lame way of thinking about this. And yep. it's... You know, just because something's new doesn't mean it's fantastic. I think if we want to treat literature like anthropologists or archivists, that's one thing. But as fans of literature, I think there's enough room to do a lot. Yeah. So my my dissertation I've mentioned a couple of times is on Chinese sci-fi. And what I've learned is there's a the wave of all the younger writers that are kind of starting to get published after the success of Liu Cixin and his three-body problem. But in Chinese sci-fi, Liu Cixin is just one of the the big three, although he's the biggest. There's also Han Song and Wang, Wang Jin Kang. And one of the Amazon Crossing books is one of Wang Jin Kang's books, but he's got lots more. And Han Song, like Han Song's a big enough deal that his novels have English names and would probably be very marketable in English in the West because they're like social criticism, so you could definitely sell that. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the odds are against them, just because it's like they're old, you know, they're some of the, what Han Song's top novels are like, I think they were published in the 90s, or the early 2000s, and that's, I suppose, from some people's perspective, that's ancient history. Yeah, it's pushing it. I mean, also, people tend to look for a representative from another place. You know, Liu Cixin is the guy doing yeah. sci-fi in China. Um, never mind other voices. So, 
I'm, I'm afraid that just happens a lot. Mm -hmm. Actually, Misty Poetry has been kind of fortunate in this regard that there have been many English language edi editions published, you know, uh, translations from Beidao, um, Yang Lian, uh, but a few other writers, you know, and they keep coming out too. There's new translations of Manka, for example, which are very good. But the translations are very good. And um, that's fantastic. But like, man, there's other stuff. <laughs> mm. I guess poetry's got the advantage of having a lower word count. So lower translation costs, lower workload. <laughs> well, <laughs> it is lower translation costs, that's for sure. Um, Poetry translations tend to be funded by, if the poet is alive, by the poet themselves. Right. Or, and, you know, poets are infamously broke. <laughs> and, uh, or sometimes by publishing houses. But publishing houses usually don't really pay that much. Part of that may be reflected in the amount of books they're expected to sell or not sell. Yeah. But, you know, part of it is also sometimes, sometimes people don't have very realistic ideas about the labor of translation either well on the topic of um who gets translated and who doesn't um do you have any it's it take this one as broadly or as specifically as like as you like um are there any books or writers you'd like to recommend to anyone listening right now to their to the podcast um well yeah i i i'll just name a few things i've read recently that i really liked Go for um it. In the spring, I read Autobiography of Death by the South Korean poet Kim Hyesun, um, translated by Dan Mi Choi. Uh, it's, it's a really great book of poetry. Um, I highly recommend it. Uh, another book I read recently was, uh, let's see, The Collected Poems of Li He. And that was, that was put out a couple of years ago. Um, let's see. That was translated by J.D. Fradsham. It's a bit of an old translation. It can be a little bit musty at times, but Li He is a, just a fantastic Tang Dynasty writer. Oh, uh, awesome. Kind of doing a bit of a different track from like Wang Wei or Du Fu or some of the, what people usually associate with classical Chinese poetry. Mm. Um, let's see. I, I'll read, recommend a couple more things that I, I've, worked on actually and uh Ooh. yeah so i'm just gonna plug myself here uh, do it do it do it uh, one is a writer named yan jun and uh Haying and i co-translated a book of his called Ten Thousand poems of a thousand elephants and he published it himself he has a publishing group i guess you'd call it just one person so he has a he has a he publishes and it's called i think Sun the Again. the call glitched there did you say publishing guru or publishing <laughs> i said publishing group um, Ah, that makes more he, sense he, he's a publisher he has he's also so yan jun is an experimental musician based in beijing and he also writes poetry and has for a long time and his poetry is very nice it's kind of a bit dadaist very playful fairly lighthearted. i think um very smart but very lighthearted. And uh, I would recommend his writing. And another writer we translated is a poet named Hu Jojo, who we did a book of his called Fog. And it has not been published yet. Hopefully it will be soon. And he's another writer in Beijing. He, a very interesting guy. Uh, he just writes for a living. He lives in Tongzhou, a, a suburb of Beijing. Okay. And, um, his writing, it's kind of a meditative, uh, serial poetry. It's, it's very good. And um, I guess one other writer I would recommend who has been translated sporadically into English and we're doing some work on now is a guy named Oning, who is... Oh, yes. Who, yeah, you know him? He's Chatzpah Man. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. So he started mm -hmm. as a poet, was an editor, made a couple of films, uh, set up a commune, uh, just kind of travels around doing architectural projects. Uh, he's a really very interesting guy, and his writing and ideas are really interesting I also. just followed him on Instagram a day or two ago. Oh. I really he's need to get on nice Instagram. Very nice hats. Oh. 
yeah i don't know how often he posts though but um yeah nice to see he's active on there so i mean um you know another thing i would recommend is uh the translator lucas klein just did a book of the recent poetry of manka which is very good i manka is one of the the main misty poets. I know I was kind of complaining earlier about the over <laughs> the, the over visibility of misty poetry, but it is really good. Yeah, first world good. problems. <laughs> and um, oh, and another book I read recently. I'll just this will be the last thing. Okay, uh, um, it better be <laughs> is uh, Peonies and Ponies by Harold Acton. Um, it's a novel. Acton was just this you know kind of. He was, He's from England, a bit of an esthete, and he wrote this book. He spent time in China, and he wrote a, a satire, a bit of a comedy of manners about foreigners living in Beijing in the first part of the 20th century. And okay. it's, it, the book's amazing. It's really, really good. Uh, it's quite funny. If you've ever been an expat in Beijing uh, and living that lifestyle, or, or if you're Chinese and hung out with a lot of expats in Beijing. And probably you know, got sick of them. Yeah, you'll definitely <laughs> see a lot there that you're familiar with. Yeah, I've seen that seems to be like a little subgenre, um, kind of like self deprecating tales of the foreigner in China. Absolutely. There's some really good literature in that genre in that vein out there. There's mm. some really bad literature in that vein out there too, but the, there's yes. good stuff too. Yeah. Have you heard of a they they're kind of like a funny videos company based in Shanghai called Mama Hoo Hoo? Mm -hmm. They do. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're very, they're, they, some of their skits are really funny. Uh huh. Yeah, and there's a Scottish guy on there, so I'm ha I have to be loyal. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, another kind of more lighthearted question about writers you like. So if you could be the translator, so tied at the hip of one Chinese writer, living or dead, uh, who would it be? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, I don't know. Zhuangzi. There you go. There's a winner. <laughs> yeah. That's, I, I, I mean, uh, I've never tried translating him. I've read a number of his translations. I've read him in Chinese. He's awesome. Um, I, I, that would be my choice. I guess that would be, he's probably mostly translated by foreign languages press, Chinese state companies. They seem to really like classic lit. Oh, no, I, there's some good translations. Uh, the New York Review of Books did. Oh, right. Um, I think, no, they don't have one. Never mind. But A.C. Graham, the sinologist, did a translation, which is good. Um, Victor Mayer, the sinologist, did a pretty good translation. There were a couple of really crummy translations. And mm. um, I would recommend either of those, the Mayer or uh, Graham translations. They're both okay. just excellent. Cool. Okay, last question. I uh, hope you're mentally prepared for this one. Um, if you could nominate a piece of music to accompany uh, either Lu Xun's Ye Cao or more specifically your translation of it, uh, Weeds, what, what would that piece of music be and why? This is going to sound insanely pretentious, but... Oh, no, go for I, it. I think it's kind of beyond music. <laughs> no, it's just, I, don't, I don't think you can hum a tune to it. I, I okay. think it's um, moving in a way that is extremely specific to its language and uh i hope that my translation captures that so you've gone for 433 by john cage <laughs> well i've got one um okay. did you ever listen to incubus back in the day i did not no well, Who was on that? The topic, we were talking about not listening to music anymore so they were one of my favorite bands when i was a teenager and they still are because i haven't found i found other favorite bands but um they've got a song called out from under which is just about getting out from under whoever's on top of you and rebelling. And it made me think of that, or when I was reading that line in uh, Weeds about underground fire, I was like, hell yeah, that's really cool. That's rock and roll. I like, love that underground. I love that line. Yeah. Yeah. 
But yeah, yeah. The, the way he wrote it, it could have been like a, it could have come across as like a corny, mm-hmm. early two thousands, alt metal song. <laughs> but um, yeah, it works. And also, I actually haven't read it yet, the original translation or your one, but. Dead Fire. That's, oh, that's such a cool title for well, like an angry yeah, poem. Dead Fire was the first piece I translated, and um, it was it's the one that's the most successful in the Yang's translation. I think, mm. um, well, at least the most successful give, for giving you an idea of what it should be doing. And uh, it's the first one I translated. I absolutely love that piece. It's the one that actually probably had the least amount of editing as it went on, too. Okay. So, um, so, so it's a really fantastic piece. Yeah, you should just go read that one. Yeah. And <laughs> if I asked you to tell us what Dead Fire is, would you say just read the poem or can you explain it? Uh, what would I say? It's kind of like the underground fire. It rages underground. Right. Um, and, that, and that's where I'll leave it. Dead fire okay. rages underground. So it's it's the same kind of deal as the subterranean underground fire. Yes. Fantastic. Well, I think that's uh, the end of the interrogation, and we've gone on for it's been about probably about 45 minutes after editing so that's it's pretty sizable sizable conversation so thank you so much for for submitting yourself to the podcast well thank you again angus this is really fun yeah um stay in touch and i'll um i'll let you know once it's uploaded and um, any any final parting shots or plugs you want to do um no 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 all right that stuff so um, Yeah. So, yeah, thanks again, though. This is really nice. I'm going to stop the recording now. So thank you again, Matt Turner, for that. That was fantastic. Um, I'm going to round off the podcast here by doing a little side-by-side read. I'm going to read first the foreign language press um, translation of Dead Fire, and then I'm going to read uh, the Weeds, Seaweed Salad, Matt Turner translation of Dead Fire. Not the whole thing, just uh, the first few paragraphs, but hopefully it'll let people well let the listeners have a little feel of the different directions translations can go and maybe get a flavor of two different styles the young translator styles and matt turner's style and then we can see which one jumps out as the most or what special qualities each one has so this is the flp version i dreamt that i was running along the mountain of ice it was a huge towering mountain reaching to the icy sky above and the sky was flooded with frozen clouds, each fragment like a fish scale. At the foot of the mountain was the forest of ice, with leaves and branches like the pine and cypress, and all was icy cold, pale as ashes. But suddenly I fell into the valley of ice. All around, above and below, was icy cold, pale as ashes. Yet over the pallid ice lay countless red shadows, interlacing like a web of coral. Looking beneath my feet, I saw a flame. This was dead fire. It had a fiery form, but was absolutely still, completely congealed, like branches of coral with frozen black smoke at their tips, which looked scorched as if fresh from a fireplace. And so, casting reflections upon the ice all around and being reflected back, it had been turned into countless shadows, making the valley of ice as red as coral. So that's the FLP version. Now I'm going to read Matt Turner's version from Weeds. Here we go. I dreamt I was running quickly on a mountain of ice. This mountain was tall enough to touch the icy sky, an icy sky crowded with clouds of ice like scales on a fish. At the foot of the mountain sat an iced wood, thick with branches and needles of pine, fir, cutting cold, total power. And I suddenly fell into a valley of ice. Every direction was icy cold, pale, Yet laying on the pallid ice, there were also innumerable red shadows, entangled as if a coral web. I bent to look under my feet. Flame was there. This was dead fire. It had burning shape, but had no swagger, total icy rest, figured coral branches, coagulated black smoke at the icy tips. Suspect it came out of its core, 
so charred. And just like that, it cast itself on every icy ornament and reflected back its cast self, and it changed into innumerable shadows, itself becoming the Valley of Ice, turning the color of red coral. So, there's your two versions. So that's all for today. Uh, thank you, Matt Turner, for doing the call with me. Thank you, Monica Lynn, for those amazing uh, woodblock illustrations. They're really something. And who else can I thank? I can thank Lushun himself for writing Yetzal, because what a legend. What a top guy. And what an amazing moustache. Um, yeah, thank you all. And thank you for listening. So don't forget, um, if you're not subscribed yet through your favourite podcast provider, do that. We're on pretty much all of them except maybe Stitcher. I should look into that. Tell your friends about the show if you think they'd like it. Tell your teacher. Tell your dog, as we've uh, discussed before. And tell your local warlord, uh, whoever's holding power of your particular region of your country at the minute. Um, they might hold some sway, so do let them know. But yeah, that's all, guys. Thank you for listening. Die. Jen. No one loves you.